0: All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn someday. Headbangers and leather, sparks fly in the dead of the night. It all comes together when they shoot out the lights. 50,000 watts of power, and it's pushing overload. The beast is ready to devour all the metal they can hold. Reaching overload. Start to explode. It's your one-way ticket to midnight. Call it the Inventive Fishing, Fishing Professor Rodcast. Hey, welcome to the latest installment of the Fishing Professor Rodcast and what a great episode this is going to be. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, and this week in the Inventive Fishing Inshore Offshore Digital Studio, we have got Captain James Beers, who runs local knowledge fishing adventures in the Tampa Bay area and is one of the minds behind the Get Spooled Web resources. And if having Captain Beers on the show isn't enough for you, well, just sit tight, because after Captain Beers gives us some great fishing know-how, I'm going to uncork a bottle of High West Campfire and give some thought to that great, unique blend. And then, if you haven't already gotten your money's worth, we'll just keep the rod cast playing because I'm going to flatten things out a bit and get my sights set on the doormats and count down my top 10 lures for targeting flounder. You know, if you've been paying attention, you know that I talk a lot about lures on the rodcast, and that's because I love lures, and I sure love fishing with them. But maybe it's time for a little professorial history lesson about lures. So way back when, when humans first started using hook and line to catch fish, It was probably the case that they used hooks from bone, shell, wood, carved stone, and eventually bronze, and they probably used baits on those hooks. In fact, we know that both ancient Egyptians and ancient Chinese began fishing with lines and hook as early as 2000 BCE, so about 4,000 years ago. And some of them probably even used rudimentary rods made from branches. But more likely than not, they use types of hand lines. In the historical record, the first time that the idea of artificial baits or lures are mentioned are by the Roman scholar Claudius Alanus who describes a way to, and this is a translation of the quote, so I'm guessing most of you don't speak Latin, so he described a way to, quote, fasten red wool round a hook and fit the wool onto two feathers which grow under a cock's wattles. This was the first method that, according to Claudius that was used by Macedonian anglers on the Astraeus River. And what he's really describing is an early version of fly tying and fly fishing. And he wrote this during the second century, so sometime between the year 101 and 200, or about 18 or 1900 years ago. Now, the Chinese were the first group of people to make what we might think of as modern fishing lines, which they fashioned from fine spun silk. And they tie to the end of the line was called, and again, this is a translation because I'm guessing your Chinese is as bad as your Latin, but what they called a wooden fish, which was an early version of a topwater lure. This was a widely used way to fish since the Song Dynasty, which ruled China from 960 to 1279, so a little over a thousand years ago. But they aren't the only originators of lures. There's evidence from far back in the 8th century of Nordic peoples fashioning spoons from iron, bronze, and copper, or even combinations, because archaeologists have found an iron hook soldered to a copper spoon. There's also evidence of lures being designed for specific species— and for use during specific times of the year, like the difference between a spoon made for ice fishing in the winter versus one for open water fishing in the summer. Even our contemporary spoon designs can be traced back to Scandinavia in the 1700s. We know too that in the mid-18th century, English tackle shops sold minnows crafted from 10. And as early as 1800, those same British tackle shops were selling realistic imitations of bugs and grubs made from painted rubber. These early minnow imitators were designed to spin and flutter to attract fish's strike. And in the mid-19th century, these minnows were first mass-produced by F. Engel of Exeter and were known as the Devon-style lure. From there, the lure industry grew, and more and more lures of different types were produced throughout the late 18th century all the way through to today. And here in the grand old U.S. of A., the first mass-produced lures in the United States in the late 19th century were primarily metal spoons and spinnerbaits. These early pioneers of the American lure industry included folks like Julio T. Buell, Riley Haskell, W.D. Chapman, and enterprise manufacturing company. Now, in the late, excuse me, in the early 1900s, modern fishing plugs made their appearance on the American market and were produced by companies like Hedden in Michigan, and again, Enterprise Manufacturing, or more familiarly now known as Pfluger in Ohio. Now, back in episode 1.27, I counted down my top 10 redfish plugs, and in that top 10, I also offered a little history of Hedden's invention of the plug, and how the plug became one of the most used lures in recreational fishing. So if you're interested, go back and check out that episode. So that's a little history to lure you into this week's episode, and with that impartment of knowledge, let's get casting. Casting. all right my listening crew we have got another great conversation headed your way this week because i am fortunate to have captain james beers in the inshore offshore digital studio today now captain beers runs local knowledge fishing adventures in the tampa bay area and brings more than 25 years of fishing experience to his guiding expertise He's also one of the minds behind the Get Spooled web resources that provide weekly information about fishing conditions around the Tampa Bay area, with information about rigging, bait selection, fishing techniques, and a lot more. He's also a contributor to the Tampa Bay Outfitters Fishing Report, and for those of you who are in the Tampa Bay area, you should know TBO over near the corner of Howard and Swan near Hyde Park blocks up from burns and man i'd go for a Burns steak right about now but uh <laughs> to stay on track captain beers is an advocate for angler education and is always eager to help anglers improve their own fishing and i am excited to pick his brain today for some pro level angling advice captain beers thanks so much for being here and for being on the Rodcast.
1: oh my pleasure thanks for having me Sid.
0: so I usually start the conversations here by asking for a bit of background from my guest, a bit of that origin story of your fishing life. How did you get into fishing and what led you to shifting your passion for fishing into a career?
1: Well, the, uh, the short version, I guess, Um, you know, I've been in the Tampa Bay area just about all my life. And uh, you know, my dad was a, was an avid bass angler uh, from Michigan. And um, you know, so when we moved down here in the early eighties, you know, we just started poking our heads around and, uh, both of us fell in love with it. Uh, geez, by the time I reached, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, we'd moved to the water on the Alafia river and bought a boat a year later. And it, it was no looking back at that point. So, uh, it's been, a, it's been a long time for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, and what a great area to do that in too, right from being
1: down on Alafia. uh,
0: that whole area the whole area of the bay is a broad territory for you to fish i mean ranging from up in old tampa bay in the north hillsborough bay down to fort de teresia anna maria cockroach whedon skyway i mean there's a lot of area and a lot of possibilities there so as a guide
1: where are your primary areas for taking clients well you're right And, and you know it's an area that i don't think you can ever fully explore every inch of it but um I'm generally based out of like kind of the the middle, middle Bay area. So near Gandy, West shore, um, that's where I'd run the bulk of my inshore trips where we're targeting, you know, kind of like that, that Tampa Bay slam, uh, snow trout, redfish, However, you know, when Tarpon's in full swing, you know, I'm leaving out of St. Pete and Anna Maria all the time. And, um, you know, I'd say that I got my, uh, you know, first level knowledge in Ruskin. And I, and I like being, you know, on that South Shore of Tampa near Cockroach as well. So it's all in play for me, but um, generally out of Little Harbor and Ruskin, um, O'Neill's and St. Pete, and um, out of the uh, Gandy Boat Ramp or Hula Bay and Middle Tampa Bay.
0: All fantastic areas, areas I know quite well. So going back then with that broad kind of spectrum area and given that growing up on the water, what got you to shift from making that a recreational thing for you into a professional thing?
1: Um, you know, so it's it's always been a huge passion of mine. Um, you know, as soon as I returned from college, it was straight into doing some tournament fishing, um, spending just about all my free time when I wasn't working on the water. And I realized that, I was going to be at my happiest if I could make a living out of it. Um, so, you know, got a 14 year old daughter. Uh, we had, we had to get, get things rolling as a family, uh, early on. But when my son was born, uh, he's eight now. Um, fortunately, I have a great partner who, who convinced me that it was time to pull the plug and make that leap into it. Um, and it was just something I had a lot of faith in, you know, if you really love it and you're really passionate about it, you know, I think that you're going to be, um, extremely motivated to make something like that work. So had a lot of confidence, a lot of support. That's fantastic. I love how you use the word passion there,
0: because I think for a lot of us who, whether we fish recreationally or professionally, that's really the defining kind of word is that this, there's a passion here. It's not just an activity. It's something that you're devoted to. Beyond activity. So, so over the last 25 years, given that broad range of the Bay Area, what have been some of the biggest changes you've seen to the bay and to the fisheries in that bay?
1: Well, I mean, you know, you could ask that question. You could probably go two different routes and I, you know, I'd call both an extreme, you know, you could, you could choose to focus on some of the deterioration that we've seen. Um, You could choose to focus on some of the uh, positive management that the state has done to make sure that they protect the resource. So, you know, I think the, I think the change is, that I focus on as a fishing guide that I want to talk about is probably like the fish behavior. As you know, we've gotten as we've become more populated in this area, there's more traffic on the water, um, there's more anglers than ever. You know, fish behavior changes. And I've seen that certain patterns that I could rely on, um, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago have altered greatly. And that's not saying that the fishing is any worse or, or really any better. It's just change in how those fish behave where they want to stage and, you know, the things that you need to do if you want to have consistent success. That's really
0: interesting. Uh, It's a good way to think about it. It's also interesting. I think of whenever I ask that question of people in the Bay Area, there are two different kinds of approaches. One, and it's always age-based. Guys my age who are around pre-SOS, you know, before Mm -hmm. the net ban was put in place, talk a lot about how the mullet populations have changed and changed what you're talking about with the fish behavior. And then a lot of the younger guys for whom that mullet, lack of mullet was never part of their fishing, always talk about other things. Like you say, the degradation, the overpopulation. And so it's always a very different Mm -hmm. kind of chronological approach also. So one of the things I really want to ask you about too, uh, given what you just said, And it's really my curiosity and my own experiences fishing in the Bay since the mid-90s is about the shark populations in the Bay. Tampa Mm -hmm. Bay is notorious for having big bull sharks around. And all over the state, though, and in fact, all over the East Coast from New England on down, I'm hearing from lots of anglers who've been saying that shark populations have grown to be a nuisance, that you can hardly get a hook fish to the boat without sharks smashing it. From your experience as someone who is on the water in the bay almost daily, what's the shark situation like for anglers these days?
1: So, you know, it is a nuisance. I, you know, for me, it kind of always has been. And, you know, that's part, you know, I think what draws them inside the bay is the, you know, the uniqueness of the estuary, right? There's an infinite uh, feeding resource for, for sharks or really any predator for that matter. Um, so, I, you know, it's kind of always been that way. I will say that I think that as you know, the, the wildlife and this includes dolphins uh, you know, tons of dolphins is that they really do adapt and get smarter and they start to learn, you know, our angling habits. And it seems like places like the skyway bridge uh, and, and I'm going to focus on tarpon for a second. So like the skyway bridge, like Egmont um, like bean point near Anna Maria, you know, kind of these tarpon hubs where there's already a huge population of fish. Well, you know, the population of fish can be hard for a shark to target. You put a hook and line in them. Now it changes the game and it makes it easy prey. You know? So I think that (laughs) I guess word is spreading throughout the, the shark community as well. But, um, you know, so I think that that's just something that as these sharks, you know, they live a long life and they return to certain places year after year. And they're, they think, Oh, geez, well, this is a lot easier right here by this big structure or this big congregation of boats. Let's hang out here and see what happens. So, um, you know, it, it is it is growing. Um, there are good years and bad years. You know, this this past year was particularly tough to get fish to the boat. Um, but something I notice is it's early on in those bites. It's like when a certain area is beginning to get really good, when beam point is just like it just started, you know, that first week can be real tough with the sharks. And then it tends to calm down as those fish spread out and kind of the the, the dust settles, if you will.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I used to fish the clam bar um, just inside the Skyway quite a bit in yeah. East Beach and Fort DeSoto. And, you know, it was always that fall bite that the sharks yeah. just seemed to just jack up in
1: the numbers right around there. You wouldn't want to oh, at yeah. a clam bar during October. So, you know, something interesting, Sid, is, uh, you know, I spend a lot of my time fishing upper bay and, you know, when, when tarpon isn't full, full, full swing, I like to get up in that safety harbor, double branch, you know, old Tampa. And, um, that's an area that I would say over the years, I hadn't been accustomed to seeing a ton of bigger bull sharks. You know, we get a lot of the flats shark species, but a lot of the bigger bull sharks, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see as much, um, this past spring and, and summer, uh, you know, with as many Jack Graval that have moved up in there, I've seen more than I ever have up in that region.
0: So north of the Courtney Campbell or- yeah,
1: yeah, let's call it like north of Howard Franklin, you know, um, and going up to Courtney. That's where I spend the bulk of my time redfishing and, you know, making my runs back through those bridges. Sometimes you see those big schools, of 10, 15 pound jacks, and it, and it brings you in to hook one for, for somebody. And uh, we, we lost a lot of those to the, to the bull sharks, which isn't normal. You know, I, don't, I haven't seen that often.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. The whole shark thing is really interesting to me because it's not just the Bay it's going on all over the country, right? On the East coast. So, Hey, to shift subjects a bit, I got to ask you about your boat because you're talking about making those runs because she's absolutely beautiful. You run that 24 foot Schaefer with a dual helm. You've got the Rodan up front and the twin power poles on the transom. Tell me about the boat and why it's your boat of choice for Tampa Bay.
1: So, you know, if, if you've seen the boat up close you know why it's it's built like a tank it's got classic beautiful lines um it's been a style of boat let's just call it i think that most would would label that the west the original west coast style bay boat um it comes from a lineage of older aquasports pro lines um where it has a closed transom kind of that carolina flare up in the front um but ben schaefer in particular has really mastered the build um and and you know, his slogan is for those that know the difference. It's a, it's just a boat you can count on and it's not going to break down on you. And, you know, while it is beautiful, functionality makes it perfect for me because I do make long runs and I'm, and I'm willing to go wherever the fish are. And as you know, the bay can stir up in a, in a real quick, um, and being able to handle a two foot chop and stay comfortable means everything. Furthermore having a boat that can be comfortable in a two foot chop and do it year after year, a thousand hours a year for, for, I mean, it's a 2004 hole, so it's got some life in it and not have a single stress crack. I mean, that's everything to me. It's just, you know, it's one thing I just don't have to worry about as a guy. Yeah, she's the, a beautiful boat. boat. There's no doubt. Thank you. I do want
0: to ask specifically too about the boat, but also the power poles and the Rodan and point out, Schaefers are built in Tampa. Power poles, another great Tampa company that, and what Robert Shamblin's done with that company is just fantastic. And even Rodan is pretty much a local company, you know, just based south of you in Sarasota. Could you talk about the local connections you have with the gear like this boat, trolling motor, power poles?
1: So we're we're blessed to to have that in our area and and the support of those companies to not just the fishing guide community, because you know, it's real easy to. Offer just kind of put something on the back of the boat, but these companies support anglers and um, far and wide and they have built their reputation on their uh, service after the sale. But the coolest thing is, um, you know, that's all that's all fine and dandy, right? It's, you know, have a great product, have a great warranty company that stands behind it. Awesome. Great start. The coolest thing about them, though, is they're really putting in the time to work with anglers, to work with boaters, to refine the product, to make the product what it is so that you really don't need to depend on that after the service sale. It's a great safety net, but you know, they're out there using the stuff themselves. They're out there testing it out on boats that get used and abused and making sure that their product year after year is, is the best that it can be. Um, Because you know, those products demand a pretty penny and it's no small investment. However, having that reassurance that it's a good investment and once you get to use it, you'll know, makes fishing uh it really changes the game uh with with a sport that's getting harder you know year after year those tools make it just that little bit easier um I I couldn't do it without them uh or I mean I I could I couldn't do it as well (laughs) without them
0: well I love that you're able to make those local connections and you know speaking of local connections you're part of the Tampa Bay Outfitters fishing report could you talk a little bit about that and what you guys do with that
1: yeah, I will. Um, so it's been a longstanding far before long before I got involved with it. Um, it's been a resource for let's call it like that West central Florida, uh, fishing community. Um, it was kind of born as a radio show, um, on a local AM station, um, with captain Jason Preto and gosh, some of the, some of the older salts that are in our community. And it's been something that's kind of just passed on to different fishing guides over the years. And, um, now, between uh, my buddy Travis Yakel and Rick Lyles and I, uh, we've kind of maintained it over the last few years. And it's just to, to kind of backtrack to that passion that, that we spoke of earlier, it really requires it to, to be consistent and do that week in, week out. And, you know, we don't ask a lot in return. It's not a for profit thing uh, by any means. But what it is, is it's a great sounding board to tackle and discuss anything going on in Tampa that has to do with fishing. Um, preservation, um, boating, uh, and it just brings that community a little bit closer. And, and honestly, um, you know, something that it kind of evolved in is, as our state is, uh, receiving more and more folks from, from other States, it's kind of a great starting point to get themselves into the conversation. Folks that have angling experience from everywhere else and really want to get their head in the water here. Uh, it's a great place to start. Uh, so it's just a lot of fun and. and we love doing it. We love talking fishing, obviously.
0: Yeah, of course. That's great. And it, and it really is a great resource. And you guys offer up tons of kinds of advice on that report. So with that in mind, I want to get some other advice from you. And I want to get you to talk about a few Tampa Bay target species and get your advice and guidance for targeting these fish as a rich okay. fishery as the Bay is. But. There's no way we can cover all of what you know and all of the species in the bay. So I want to target those four primary sport fish that people come to the bay for. And let's start with a fish that you've really earned a reputation as being one of the best guides in the area for finding and catching, and that's redfish. Talk mm-hmm. to me about redfishing
1: in the bay and the James Beer redfish philosophy. You know, so, um, gosh, what? How, we have an hour, right? <laughs> so, uh, uh, you, you know, red fishing is one of those things that for me has always been at the forefront of what I'd like to personally go and target, right? And it's an experience that when you catch them, when you get into them really good, that I think is a, is the pinnacle of what I, the, the experience I can share with the customer. Um, for for me, it's kind of about the the pursuit of it and really refining that. And I want to, and what I mean by that is, there are a lot of locations that you can go and have a really high chance of catching a redfish, and at the same time have a really high chance of being next to another boat or several. Um, so for me, um, in my background, I like to get out and explore. So I want to find the most comfortable fish that I can, not the easiest to go and get. Um, so, you know, that involves a lot of exploring, a lot of, a lot of fuel burning, a lot of time on the water without a rod in my hand, just kind of learning and observing. Um, and that's when I get asked a lot as, as I tell a new angler wanting to get into red fishing is the, the best thing you can do to increase your odds is get on the front of your boat on a trolling motor and work shorelines, uh, work grass flats and understand where these fish like to be why and and connect the dots why are they there on different tides um and, and i think that that's if you're going to be consistent at it that has to be a, a quality that you have uh, whether you're a fishing guide whether you're a recreational guy whether you're a tournament angler is you have to know a little bit more or try to learn a little bit more as to why those fish are there then oh great they're here let's catch them so you know that's kind of my philosophy on that
0: All right. So without giving away your secrets now that we've got the philosophy, favorite (laughs) lures, favorite places in the bay, not your honey holes or specific GPS coordinates, but tell us, tell us where you're looking. I mean, is this a a Whedon
1: Island, Picnic Island, you know? So great places. Uh, They're they're great places and they're full of fish. Um, However, I tend to get a little more off the beaten path. Um, I, I really enjoy that upper Tampa Bay. And, and I like it because it's quiet. You know, I don't have the same amount of boat traffic. Um, it's a little more tricky area. You know, as we, as we work north into upper Tampa Bay, you'll start to see higher, uh, more oyster bars, uh, more shallow uh, bars protecting the grass flats. Just a lot more features that I think redfish are, are drawn to. Um, and those fish are less pressured. So I spend a lot of time up there. Um, but Weedon Island, Picnic Island, uh, geez, Fort DeSoto, the entire shore of South shore from, um, you know, like the little manatee river running all the way South to Sarasota. I mean, it, it really is endless, but you know, to make my living as a guide, it's an easy run from my house to get there. And, uh, that's just where I prefer to be. Um, when it comes to lures, you know, I'm in love with lures <laughs> and I like plugs. I like soft plastics. I like top waters. I like spoons. But, you know, and here's a question I get asked all the time, Sid. If you only could pick one, what are you going to use? And that's going to be a jig head. That's on the list
0: today. That's on the list. It's a
1: jig head and a paddle tail. It's so uh, diverse in how it can be fished, cast it a long way, work it a bunch of different styles. We can make it look like a shrimp, a crab, a mullet, a pilchard, pinfish, you name it. And as far as color goes, um, I really tell people you can use whatever color you want as long as it's black and gold. (laughs)
0: fantastic (laughs) fantastic and in any paddle tail are you are you a brand specific guy i'm I'm big
1: on the new gulp stuff man i'll be honest with you if you add in that scent that gulp is known for um and, and going over the years you know the gulp shrimp is probably uh a reliable starting point to go and fish any species of fish in tampa bay um in the past couple of years though what i've seen from gulp and the change they've made to the um the texture the feel of their soft plastics, um, and the newer stuff that I've seen now, it's everything that I've liked in other brands. They've brought to the table colors, texture, um, you know, how it moves through the water is all there now and the scent. So, I mean, I keep jars of that stuff all all throughout my boat.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's always interesting to me when people get to talking about gulp There's the camp that always, you know, you know, nose up a gulp. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then there are those that, you know, like you who are big fans of gulp, but for so long, I, I did a lot of tournaments in the bay, redfish tournaments in the bay. And there was always this sort of secret motto is if you're not catching something, then you go to gulp. And I never understood Mm -hmm. why we didn't just start with the gulp, you know, right. Right. (laughs) You know, and
1: I'm familiar with that same statement, you know, that's kind of what we always said.
0: (laughs) Yep. Yeah. and and I will say, you know, as a, also a big gulp fan, um, that new mullet shape they just came out with to the paddle tail mullet is a uh, oh yeah a really great
1: redfish one. All right, so same question, but for snook. Okay. Um, so for snook, you know, it depends. Like, you know, we there's so, gosh, snook fishing in Tampa Bay is it's probably as good as it gets. I, I mean, there's uh, nothing I can count on more as a fishing guide than going and catching and releasing snook. Um, it's fun. It's fun for every age. They're fun in every size. That's really a great fish. And they're generally a little more cooperative. Um, and you know, the, the coolest thing about them is that where they differ from redfish is that you can, um, you can kind of choose how you want to go about snook fishing. Do we want to go fish docks? Do we want to go fish bridges? Do we want to fish the flats? Do we want to fish that country and, and explore, gosh, the, the endless terrain that Tampa Bay has to offer that really is tough to see anywhere else. Um, that's that's kind of why, uh, you know, snook fishing is, I'd say my charter business, almost built around catching and releasing those. Um, so I, I think that your options get a lot more broad uh, when we talk about snook and the, the bait choices get a lot more broad as well. Um, plug fishing though, probably is my favorite. I think it's the most exciting is to see a snook, you know, which I always call a bass on steroids, come up and grab a plug. Um, like no other fish can is, is quite a sight to see. And it's a, it's, it's a very intense experience.
0: What about the the big boys under the gandhi?
1: Yeah. So the big boys, uh, for those, I'm going to need a big pinfish. <laughs> I like a big pinfish. Um, you know, there's a, there's a tournament tight the drag that's, uh, it's a great fundraiser for, uh, you know, spinal injuries and, and it's, it's organized by a family that's here in Tampa Bay. And they, they do such a cool tournament in the spring and fall. And it's an overnight slam tournament. And, uh, I've, fished it for many, many years. And one of the coolest things is, you know, that that tournament starts at midnight is getting out there and having a few pinfish in the well and going to fish those bridges. That's, that's one thing I'll say that uh, when it comes to the bridge fishing for the big snook is I always like, I, I'd always prefer to see, uh, you know, a, a real dark night with good incoming water. And I almost feel like it's a given. I almost feel like if you, if you have that scenario um, you're going to get the bites, especially if you have some big pinfish.
0: Excellent. Yeah. I love night fishing under the gandy is just, it's just <laughs> something else. So, all right. Speckled trout.
1: Speckled trout. So, um, a lot of conversation about speckled trout lately Sid. um, it, it's, that's a, that's a fish that right now you're, we're seeing a lot of changes with, um, we're seeing a lot of changes and, Um, I've had a lot of conversations with this on our show gets fooled with other fishing guides in the community, with the, with the uh, wildlife management. Um, Trout has become a little more difficult, especially if you want to get bigger trout and um, I'm not totally convinced that's a population thing, but I'm noticing that trout where they, I guess um, where you'd expect them to be, they're not there as much as they once were. Um, However, the the canals especially residential stuff you know that have a little more depth working in and out boy have they really kind of grown to like that uh more than they more than i see them on the grass flats you know as a kid and as a teenager and even as a even as an early on in my fishing guide career um you could really go and hit kind of the deeper edges of grass flats rocky point um you know big island weed island and really uh know that man i'm gonna get my trout bite today you know it's, everything's right um the water's clean it's moving it you know it all sets up perfectly it's less dependable right now and like i said fish behavior is changing and if you can pattern it um you know you can be good at it now what i'm doing is i'm searching out those popular areas around you know the these uh predictable great areas and going into the canals that surround them, the mouths of creeks, you know, anything that offers maybe just a little bit more depth and finding a lot of success, uh, at doing that. All
0: right. That sounds great. Yeah. It's interesting that they're moving off the grass flats because trout were always the look for the skinny water with the grass and find yeah. the edges. Uh, and now, now that you're saying moving into those canals those man-made canals, um, that certainly changes the fishing all around
1: there, around Bay shore yeah. and that whole area too. So um, I fortunately want to get- for those trout, there's a lot of those, a lot of that exists hand in hand, you know? So that's why I say, when we talk about populations, I wouldn't say the population is widely down. I, I would just say that like redfish have gone through, you know, they're kind of just seeing a little bit of a change and it's been that way for a couple of years. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's one of the interesting things about the Bay. And I think we've been talking about it the whole time is that there's constant change you know, not just uh, season to season, but, you know, over time, the fisheries behavior and, you know, what's what's there and the populations affecting also what's going on. That's, you know, change is part of the bay. So. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's tie off the species with the silver kings, the tarpon in the bay. And I particularly want to hear because you brought it up about your thoughts about tarpon under the skyway. <laughs> OK, uh,
1: well, uh, tarpon on the skyway. Well, let me start by saying the first tarpon I ever caught was under a skyway. Uh, so I have a connection, you know, to that. And uh, it's a love-hate relationship. Let me say that. Uh, anybody who tells you tarpon fishing is easy, either uh, just had a really good day or hasn't been doing it very long. <laughs> uh, so uh, tarpon fishing is, I, I use that word love-hate. And whenever I get phone calls about tarpon fishing, I try to be as transparent as I possibly can. Because it's, it can be uh, hours of boredom and some of the most chaotic intense moments of your life. And if you're prepared to wage that war, then it will grab you and pull you in and pull you so deep that you'll never wanna fish for another species again. Um, So that's Tarpon. Uh, you know, Tampa Bay is a great, uh, fishery for it. Um, you know, I would probably say it's one of the better, uh, in in the Florida area. Obviously everyone knows Boca Grande, the Florida Keys, the mullet run on the East coast. There's a lot of cool ways to do it. Um, but Tampa is probably the best to do it in all the ways, right? If we want to do it on fly, if we want to do it on bait, if we want to do it on our official, if we want to do it on a beautiful beach, if we want to do it in backcountry. You know, it's probably one of those few that you can do it any which way you choose. Um, The Skyway, though, I think is really, in my opinion, the epicenter of what makes it special. Right. Uh, It's a bait hub. (laughs) You know, it's going to hold bait every single day of every single year for as long as I've been on the earth. There's been bait at the bridge Um, that makes it a great resource for tarpon who who are coming in here with a you know a voracious appetite that's what they're here to do take some reprieve from their journey come in here gorge and then you know go offshore and mate when they when it's time um and everything they want to eat is here crabs pilchards mullet breadfin, ladyfish goodness you name it it's all here and and the skyway i think is really what holds that prey and in effect holds yep. the predator
0: It is a fantastic area to fish When way back when, and I'm talking probably, you know, 94, 95, before they revamped the the old Skyway into what's now the Mm -hmm. Skyway Fishing Pier. We used to fish out there. We'd jump the fence and take, you know, old uh, cash and carry shopping carts to haul haul our gear out there. We used to run clothespin rigs, uh, and you'd put out a crab or a penfish and you'd jump tarpon from the old skyway, uh, never get them up of course, but that was, (laughs) that was always the blast of the thing to do was to try to jump a tarpon from the old, old bridge.
1: Oh yeah. I can tell you there's a, there's a community of anglers and, um, they might have more fun tarpon fishing than anybody I know that still do that. And, you know, obviously no, they're up are they're landing the fish is probably not going to happen, but the excitement of it is, is what they're all about. It's just pure love for, for doing it. And they're still out there doing it to this day and age.
0: Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I I was reading the other day, man, they're having some problems on the Skyway pier and now are talking about banning fishing from the fishing pier, which is just crazy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I, it's nothing new for me. It's, it's kind of a topic that resurfaces every so often. Um, you get a bad apple in the bunch, um, that it does something that just won't make sense to anybody else. And, you know, they need to be held to account. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, the, the, the folks that go out there are doing it because they just love it. Right. It's, uh, and, and they're all, uh, great stewards of, of, um, preservation, conservation, whatever it is, but every now and then you run into some issues and, you know, just got to be dealt with, but I don't, gosh, I couldn't imagine them ever closing that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why they, that's why they refurbished. It was specifically yeah. so that, you know, guys like me weren't jumping the fence and going out there with yeah. all the broken bottles <laughs> right. and, you know, no, it's a, it's a fantastic pier. So, Hey, you, 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 brought it up and i meant to get to it earlier but tell us about get spooled
1: oh well so get spooled um so actually it's a it's a good time to talk about this because we're going through kind of a transition um as a group but what it is it's it's really just an educational based uh live fishing report that in the past we've done weekly and the way our businesses and and uh home lives are going we're going to beef it up. And we're, our goal is to go to monthly. And um, we're talking to uh, a huge local player in the fishing community, mastery engine center. Who's, who's a big, uh, who, who's a big player in the Suzuki repower market who, which we're all blessed to, to be a part of. Um, and we're looking at changing locations. So we'll be over in St. Pete and to go to a monthly show, which is going to give us a little bit more time to kind of compare to kind of uh, gather all of what's going on in the water, bring it to you in an organized fashion. And at the same time with uh, being on site with them, we'll be able to tap into their technicians. And, you know, because boating is also becoming such a a huge thing sport around here that that people want to know about. It's not just the fishing side and there's a lot of great information that we'll be able to tap into with them. And uh, we're kind of in the midst of that conversation and rolling that out. So stay tuned on that, but I can tell you at its core, it's about the angler. It's a, it's a show that's about the angler, informing them, educating them, uh, creating discussion um, around topics that affect the bay. And uh, that's what we will always intend it to be that way.
0: Excellent. Yeah. I mean, it, Mm -hmm. From what I've seen of it, it's a great show already. And to be able to bring that level of focus. Hey, speaking of St. Pete, since we were talking mm-hmm. about Tarpon, you ever get out toward Honeymoon in Caladesi and, you know, salt the earth there for Tarpon?
1: <clears throat> so, yeah. So I have an old friend who's spent his time as a guide here in the Keys in Colorado. And um, I, I can tell you that uh, I don't that often anymore, but um, I have a friend, Jacob Hill, and he's spent a lot of time doing it. And I can tell you that they have a special tarpon fishery up there. And uh, I personally think especially the way you beach fish up there. um, It's been something that in my time, I've spent a lot of time uh, fly casting to to the tarpon up there. And uh, usually when somebody asks me about fly fishing for tarpon, I'd say, yeah, you can do it in Tampa. But if you want to catch one, go up to Honeymoon, (laughs) you know, and do it there. Uh, It's a great fishery as well. Some great passes that come in off that beach that, that make it, um, you know, that, that want that make those tarpon want to work up and down those, uh, those beaches. But, uh, it, it's a, it's, and it's beautiful. It really is like, and that's <clears throat> when it comes to tarpon fishing is, yeah. Tarpon fishing is great, but some of the scenery, some of the visuals that you get, uh, when you look at honeymoon and Caladesi early morning, you know, sun cresting, uh, Egmont key as the sun is setting and you're working an outgoing, Tidal flush, um, the Skyway, sun's down. You know it's all lit up. Tarping are rolling. You hear them. I mean, those are those are visuals and moments that are going to be imprinted on you forever. And that's also what makes it so special. Yeah,
0: it's it's amazing out there. I love red fishing uh, in that no motor zone around the DC. Just fantastic redfish around. Me too. Yeah. And
1: as an as an avid fly angler, uh, I can tell you that that's worth the trip. That's worth it. Uh, To get up in that
0: area. Yep. All right. So, with all this in mind, we've got the media, we've got the boat, we got the species. So, let's talk about the gear a little bit. And, you know, you just said a little while ago you're a big lure guy. I'm a big lure junkie too. I do a lot of lure reviews on the show and things like that. But I also know that you're a big fan of pen. And I'd like to hear about why you're dedicated to pen spinning reels and how you think about your spinning gear for the kinds of fishing you're doing. Okay, um,
1: well, you know, I can tell you that growing up and uh, in the Tampa Bay area and, the, and, and fishing exclusively saltwater is getting dependable reels that are going to last. And that, as a youngster working at Publix or where you know wherever I've been, I've made my money in the past. When you invest that money, nothing's more frustrated than a reel breaking down. And, and if there's an environment that'll do it, it's the salt water. And if there's a saltwater environment that'll do it fast, it's Tampa. You know, you have so many different species when you go out. Um, so not only do you have the element of the salt and corrosion that exists, you also have the element of, hey, I'm out here trout fishing, and I just took the 35-inch red, and it blows up all the gears inside of it. Uh, so that's a little bit about how I think about a spinning reel when I choose it, right? It has to be uh, corrosion resistant, you know, saltwater proof, let's call it that. Um, and, 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 nothing is, but if there's one that's close, it's been, but it also has to be able to handle whatever I throw at it. Right. And as a fishing guide, the one thing I learned is you just can't have a ton of different setups. I can't have 5,000, 6,000, conventionals, 2000s for trout. It just doesn't work. There's not enough room. I need to have five or six of one thing that can do it all. And, That is a reel that over time spending my own money on has proven to me that it's going to outlast some of the ones that I've used in, in the past. Uh, They've made some innovations in the past few years, namely the CNC machine main gear that, gosh, I mean, sometimes I'm replacing reels that I don't know why, because they still work great. And that's after a lot of use and abuse. So that really is what it boils down to for me. Sid. Is just, Knowing that I can put one size spinning reel about a three thousand on the boat, count on it. And if I run into something that's a big surprise, I've got a chance.
0: Yeah, and one of the, so let me ask you a different kind of question about that though. I mean, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying about the Penn spinning reels, and mm-hmm. you know, the whole East Coast of the U.S. has been sort of spinning reel focused since early yeah. on, since you're really since Penn started developing reels back during the Great Depression, but. Mm-hmm. On the West Coast, California, they're big into these low-profile bait casters, and we're starting to see those make their way over here. Are you seeing any of you know the inshore guides in Tampa starting to switch from spinning gear to the low-profile um, uh,
1: bait casters? Well, so here and there, I wouldn't say that the fishing guide, well, who, who I'll tell you that that type of reel is going to be aimed at is probably going to be more your site fishing exclusively artificial and especially tournament anglers Um, you know and let's look at some of the best red fishing that you know we have in the in the southeast let's go let's look at Texas moving east into Louisiana up to South Carolina you know all around Florida well Texas and Louisiana go over there and look count how many guys are using spinning reels inshore about about none they love the bait casters Um, where I think that like when we get into my region is that most of our fishing guides and most of our recreational guys have to use such a wide variety of uh, baits and lures that the spinning reel, I think, without having an arsenal of different sizes with different um, types of line on them is probably just going to be a little more effective. It's going to allow us to cast a shrimp with just a little split shot that doesn't weigh much, a big bait, um, uh, three, eight ounce jig with a paddle tail, a top water it, it, without having to worry about, Oh shoot, this line is maybe just a little too thin. I don't want to backlash it and tons of wind, you know? And I think that's where the spinning reel just tends to dominate this region is for that reason.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I hadn't taken the wind aspect of it into consideration, mm-hmm. but yeah. And uh, you know, I was looking the other day at you know Penn's Fathom and some of the other level wines that are out there, thinking I might
1: just have to start trying that for you know pitching yeah. top water or something. So yeah. yeah, and their newer, lower profile saltwater bait casters are kind of answering what the demands of what so many people have asked for for so long um, is to really bring that what Penn's known for, and that's their toughness and durability, and make a really smooth low-profile, lightweight bait caster, and some of the new ones they're offering there in the past two years will just blow your socks off. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have to take a look at those.
0: All right, Mm -hmm. so a little while ago, you were talking about gulp, we were talking about baits, but Mm -hmm. a while back, I don't remember how long ago, you did an episode of Guides Day Off on Waypoint TV, Mm -hmm. where you're cast netting for live bait, greenies and penfish mostly, now the whole premise of that show is to show what you pro guys do on your days off when you're fishing for you rather than guiding someone there. So with that in right. mind, when it comes down to it, if on your day off you're going live bait, are you really a live bait guy, uh, artificial guy, or a combo guy? Depending on.
1: <laughs> Listen, Sid, I don't, I don't really want to get wrapped into into throwing any type of label on it. I, you know, the the truth of the matter is, is that I love it all. Like I I love live bait fishing. I love fly fishing. I love artificial tournament style fishing. I just love fishing. Um, so, you know, when somebody asks to go or when my buddies get together, we don't really care what, what we use. Um, you know, but there is something exciting about the live bait bite, um, that, uh, that is special. And when it comes to Tampa and working down to like the Charlotte Harbor um, area is the pilchard. You know, it's such a prevalent bait, and call it a white bait, a greenback, a scaled sard, whatever you want to call it, and it has a million different names. Um, having a live well full of those, nothing's off. You can go do whatever you want that day. We can go snapper, grouper, tarpon, redfish, snook, flounder. You know, cobia. You know, it's really everything is is on the table. So there's just something about being in touch with the fishery and being able to go acquire the bait put in your live well and go do whatever you want that just always sets you up for a great day so so i really enjoy that style yes
0: yeah so you know i was thinking about that episode you know and i've kind of guided the questions today to be about those bigger more well-known sport fish you know the redfish and mm-hmm. snook the tarpon but on that show you guys are just having a blast picking up little gags and mangroves yeah. and you know <laughs> And i love how excited you're getting over this and i'm thinking here Here's a guy, Captain Beers, who's known as this fantastic redfish guy, and he's literally giggling over mangrove snapper. And so yeah. I <laughs> love the whole attitude on that episode of that show. And, you know, we haven't talked about Tampa Bay's bottom fishing fishery, you know, and there are a lot of great snapper and grouper in the area, just as well as some of these other fish.
1: Yep. Yeah, and uh, it- You know, snapper and grouper and bottom fishing is such a, um... I, I, I probably don't do a good job uh, giving it enough credit, you know, through my social media accounts and how I advertise my guide business. But not only is it fun, but it's a great way to put some food on the table, you know, and it's delicious. And what's unique about Tampa is that Skyway shipping channel that runs in is a is a major highway for these fish that would never think about coming in in the populations they do, but because that highway exists and gives them that. 40 50 and sometimes more uh, feet of depth it has turned the bay into a mecca of those species and um, you know I do a lot of grouper fishing in fact uh, you know the the late December you know around Christmas that's like some of my favorite time to do grouper fishing well when I'm booking those charters one of the questions I get all the time is well how far off or how far offshore are we going how many miles and I was like well None. <laughs> we're going to 500 go right yards over here. yeah five yeah and it's i don't know that many places can offer that and um you you know if there's one thing that's driving it's the gag grouper fishing and snapper fishing those fish in the past few years have gotten bigger and bigger and uh, the numbers have increased and man it's just a blast and when it turns on and you're fishing big mangrove snapper on light tackle or grouper on you know heavy spinning gear i don't know that there's uh, uh 10 second, uh, more intense 10 seconds in fishing than it is turning one of those fish away from the rubble they're sitting on.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think I, I'm glad we brought that up because that is a great fishery. Yeah. And then again, back over to that area under the skyway. And, you know, as you're saying that yeah. you're talking about December, you know, the other thing we don't talk about there is I think it's also one of the best Spanish mackerel fisheries in the area, you know, running anywhere from Fort DeSoto back up through the skyway. Um, you know, Ten Cent Bridge, Mullet Key, That there is just fantastic Spanish mackerel fishing there, too.
1: Goodness, it's, um, it, it, here it goes, the bait, the, the Skyway Bridge, and that's really what is kind of basing all of these great species that we have, too, right? You know, you work in either direction, that Skyway Bridge, just like you said, and you're going to find fish. The Spanish mackerel fishing is awesome. Um, you know, they're, they're a fun fish. There's so many different ways to prepare it for table fare. Um, and honestly, like it's a, it's a fish that I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's, it's a, a uh, little more forgiving when you go out and do it, you can get away. You don't have to be as keen on the specific tackle and leader size and bait of choice. You know, it's something that's easy to get into. And, uh, and once they're on the line, you know, they scream, they pull drag yep. and they are a fun fight. Yeah.
0: When we fish that area, particularly
1: uh, right around the skyway,
0: we used to always carry a little portable gas hibachi. And yeah. you'd hit the Spanish, you didn't even have to take them off the hook, fillet them, get them on the grill, and it's you know the freshest, fastest. That's how we get oh, during the day. Just fantastic. Yep. 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 Throw a Spanish on the grill, fold the grill back up, put it away, no charcoal, nothing. Just go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They've always um Spanish mackerel have always kind of kind of gotten kind of a mixed review. And uh it's because they can be, if you know, if you're you know not careful in your uh fillet method, you know, you can get that fishy taste. Some people love it. Um, I'm a fan of it. But um Rick Lyles, who I do get spooled with, many years ago when I first got involved with that show, we were asked, uh, what are your favorite species to eat in Tampa Bay? Just your top three. And of course, Travis and I, the the younger guys on the show, Oh, snook. Oh, you know, snapper grouper. Of course. Right. Right. And Rick tells us we're crazy for not picking Spanish mackerel. And I said, Rick, well, well yeah, I mean, it's good, but it's not one of my favorites. And he goes, it's because you don't know how to clean it. And I said, really? And lo and behold, the next week he brought a, a fish in and showed us such a unique way of doing it. Um, that totally changed my opinion. Now it's one of my favorites. It's, it's uh, it's a really, it's a delicious fish, and the meat, when handled properly, is some of the best it gets.
0: Yeah, I agree. I love it broiled. I love it grilled. Yeah, absolutely. This is Rick Riles you're talking about. Rick Riles. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. yeah, I would trust anything he said. So. <laughs>
1: yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I love hearing that. I love talking about you know those kinds of uh, yeah these opportunities in the Bay. You know, you're you are a fantastic amb- ambassador for the Tampa Bay. I think that you know the Tampa Bay Thanks. needs to just have Captain Beers as the ambassador. We'll put you out in front of the Gasparilla Parade and, you know, you're going to
1: make you an ambassador. So there we go. Give me some beads and sign me up. (laughs) That's right.
0: Well, listen, man, this has been fantastic. But to wrap it up, I want to cast Mm -hmm. out my traditional wrap-up question and ask you, with all of your experience on the water, Mm
1: -hmm. what's your
0: grail fish? What's the one bucket list fish that's still out there waiting for
1: Captain Beers? (sighs) Okay, so... That is an excellent question. And one, as I'm, you know, going up in years and gaining wisdom and, you know, I've got some kids that pretty soon I'll want to take on some of these destination trips. Um, The, I think what would be the most fun is, and I have a fly fishing background, is the Giant Valley on fly. Uh, That is one that I am going to have to go after uh, in, you know, in my time that I, that I get on earth. If I could go and catch one fish and eat it, and I haven't done it yet, I've eaten it, but I've never caught my own. It's a Wahoo.
0: Those are both excellent fish. You want to do the Trevelli in Australia on the reef, or where, I where do so, you think so? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I really want to do it on a reef. I want to do it from land and I want to do it on fly. Those are my, I'm not picky, right?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I like the fact that you've got it, you've already thought about it enough that you know it's there. And so you'll probably go do it definitely you know a, a lot of people i ask they kind of hem and haw and go gosh never really thought about what's the one fish that's out there yeah. you know, i talked to these guys that have you know species lists of two three hundred fish they've caught and you know they still can't figure out what their grail fish is or what their. of course is. so you know no. Yeah, my still What's funny fish.
1: about this is the reason i want that gt is i am i like the the the, the violence of their fight of the jack craval the yeah, amber jack big you know jack. um it's in my blood. I just like, if, there, if there's one thing in fishing that if I could put my finger on that that I find to be exciting, it's the battle. It's the fight. And, um, you know, I, I think that my son, who's now eight, and as he's getting more and more into fishing, when we go out in our spare time, you know, we could be in the best snook bite, the best redfish bite. But before that day is over, he is going to demand a Jack cravat. And I'm like, well, buddy, you know, <laughs> hey, we're doing great out here. He's like, yeah, but I need a jack, dad. <laughs>
0: that, that's an awesome target fish, though. I mean, and let's face it, too. For guides, guiding people who aren't familiar with a fishery, that's pure excitement for a client. Too. Definitely. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah, they, we we do a lot of jackfishing just north of you, uh, Wisco, Wakasasa area. They come in yeah. really big and yeah so so much fun love it love it well listen captain beers i can't thank you for taking the time today to talk with me and for everyone in the listening crew if you're looking for a top tier guide in the tampa bay area be sure to look for captain beers and local knowledge fishing adventures cap thank you so much for being on the rodcast
1: oh you're welcome man and it thanks for having me and i and i love what you're doing and uh, i love the show as i told you before um it was great to be on and i could tell you i had a lot of fun talking fishing
0: with you oh thanks we can talk fishing anytime you want man you know you're, you got you're two hours south of me so absolutely <laughs> all right well take care Indeed, 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 I am in need of a bourbon break today, and this seems as good a time as any to pour a few fingers and sip liberally, so this week I want to take a look at a blended whiskey from that great distillery out of Park City, Utah, High West, and I'll be thinking and drinking on High West's Campfire Whiskey. Now, before I get to the campfire, I do think the High West story is a story worth the telling, in abbreviated form, of course. You see, back in Ought four, David and Jane Perkins, both of whom are biochemists, were taking a tour of a distillery in Kentucky. They got to thinking about whiskey distilling and their own work as biochemists, And so they packed up and moved out to Park City, Utah. And in 2006, they founded High West Distillers and began distilling in 2007. They started off with a small operation run out of their garage. And then as their whiskeys became more popular, they expanded and have now become a globally recognized top tier distiller. Now you may be asking why in the world Park City, Utah, which is generally known as a resort city tied to the Deer Valley Resort and the Park City Mountain Resort, it was also host to the 2002 Winter Olympics. But the Perkins picked this place because David was fascinated by the idea of the Old West and because while most folks don't know it, Utah actually has a venerable distilling tradition that dates back to the 1800s. Now Obviously, I can't go through that full history here, but to set the tone and the context for High West's appearance in Utah, let me offer that according to a 1908 issue of the American Historical Magazine, there wasn't much record of how many distilleries were operating in Utah before 1862. However, when the IRS went into effect in 1862, the revenue collectors' records show that between 1862 and 1869, which also happens to be when the railroads arrived in Utah, that there were 37 distilleries operating in Utah, and they were all owned by Mormons, including owned by Brigham Young. Now, you have to keep in mind that while we might, not, we might knee-jerk react and think that the religious history of Utah and the Mormons and such might make distilling seem an unwelcome practice at the time, but the thing is that at the, t- at the time, alcohol had a great value for medicinal purposes and was one of the most often used medicines. Plus, it was a way to turn food that would have spoiled otherwise into something of great value. So Utah actually has strong roots in the distillation world. That said, let's turn some attention to High West Campfire, which, as I said, is a blended whiskey made from whiskeys that High West sources from other distillers. And interestingly, unlike a lot of other whiskey makers out there that don't disclose the sources of their outsourced whiskey, High West has always been transparent about where their whiskeys come from. So the campfire is a blend of bourbon, rye, and Scottish malt whiskeys. Now, I have to share the story that David Perkins shares on the High West webpages about where they got the idea for the campfire whiskey. So this is off of that webpage, direct quote from David Perkins himself. One morning at the Brukeladdic distillery bed and breakfast, my wife and I smelled peat in the air. The great ladies that made our meals were simmering a bottle of peated whiskey and sugar. Later that night, they brought out a dessert of ripe honeydew drizzled with that peated syrup. That was the most unusual, delicious, and memorable ending to a dinner I've ever had. The combination of melon and sweet smoke really worked, so naturally, I thought, why not mix sweet bourbon and peat? The main flavor, or the melody, is sweet honey from a ripe bourbon. The enhancing flavor, or the harmony, is floral fruity spice from a mature rye whiskey. The accent, Satchmo's gravelly voice, is smoke from a peated scotch whiskey. The proportion? Well, they're top secret. So, that was from Perkins. So, that's when the Perkins started blending whiskey to find that fruity, sweet, smoky taste they were looking for that would become High West Campfire. Now, Campfire is a 92-proof whiskey that comes in the now classic-looking high-west style lean bottle with etched glass and that great bulbous cork top. The eye of the campfire is a golden amber, like the uppermost part of a campfire flame. The nose is unmistakably peaty and sweet from the corn. The sweetness is there in the corn and also in a light toasted brown sugar. The peat and sweet blend well together with neither dominating but as Perkins suggests in that description that I just read, y'all, they work together in harmony. The palate maintains that harmony, blending a smoky campfire taste of charred wood and vanilla and caramel. That smoke complements the peat from the scotch whiskey, and they drift throughout the taste progression, really setting up a constant background of peat and smoke that dominate the flavor. I will admit, I really like the intermingling of these two flavors, particularly as varieties of sweet flavors like ripened dark fruit, molasses, vanilla, and toasted marshmallows appear and recede throughout the taste spectrum. The rye also brings a spiciness to the conversation some cinnamon, some black pepper. And the finish, well, that maintains that spicy with the cinnamon becoming more prominent but the smoke never leaves, and that smoke brings a nice, woody finish to the whiskey. So in a lot of ways, the High West Campfire is a unique blend that really brings together a peaty, sweet, smoky flavor that is really quite satisfying. One last final note, I think we anglers need to be aware of regarding High West Campfire, and that's when High West released the campfire. They also announced a conservation project called Protect the West through which the High West distilleries committed $1 million to groups that are committed to protecting lands that are impacted by climate change. The first donations of $150,000 went to the Wildland Fighter Firefighter Foundation, Protect Our Winter, and American Prairie. And if you go back to the bourbon break in episode 1.8, the episode with the Jim Hendrix interview and the top 10 shrimp imitator countdown, you'll hear my review of High West's American Prairie and the relationship between that bourbon and High West's commitment to the American Prairie Conservation Organization. And since Utah and the American West is such a critical place for so many great trout rivers these kinds of conservation efforts really serve anglers in western waters in important ways and those then well they're my thoughts about american prairie campfire blended whiskey as a final note and my regular disclaimer as always please keep in mind that the fishing professor bourbon break reviews are not sponsored the distillers have not sent me samples nor do they influence my reviews at all Though, as always, I am open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know how that I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky tonks, and back alley speakeasies. And speaking of, let me give a quick shout out to the Patterson House in Nashville. Now, this is a chain bar, I think there's another one in Cincinnati and a couple other places but it's got a great speakeasy vibe to the place. It's small and intimate and dark and just exudes a bourbon-y feel to it, and they really focus on making great mixed drinks. I've only been there once, but I had to try their Bacon Old Fashioned, and boy am I glad I did. It's a -a one-of-a-kind cocktail that brings together those two great flavors of bourbon and bacon— Which seemed to me to have been made to go together, since we're quite willing, if not eager, to dive into a rasher of bourbon-cured bacon, so why not a bacon-infused bourbon cocktail? Just a damn fine drink in a great bar atmosphere in Nashville. And so, may the winds of fortune sail you, and may you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, this drink's on me. As always, if you've got comments about this week's Bourbon Break, feel free to email me at Sid at And now, back to the Rodcast. Okay, okay, okay. It is time for this week's top 10 list. And this week, it's going to be a rather flat list, or rather it's going to be a list for targeting flatties. I'm talking about lures for targeting flounder. Now, I got to tell you, I love fishing for flounder because I really love eating flounder. They are one of my all-time favorite eating fish. I could eat fried flounder every day and not get sick of it. A little tartar sauce, a little Tabasco, and mm-mm-mm. I tell you what, boys and girls, that is good eating right there. So yes, indeedy do I do love me some flounder or two. And I do love catching them too, particularly when you get into a doormat or two. Now, there are about 30 species of flounder around the world, and while they are prevalent in coastal waters, they have even been found in water as deep as 35,000 feet down. Now there's this little spring near my home that flows into the Suwannee River which feeds the Gulf of Mexico called Manatee Springs and we use the spring as a dive site for dive classes because the water is usually gin clear and the sandy bottom is usually right at 15 feet down which is perfect for dive training. Interestingly there is a freshwater flounder that lives in the sound or the sand around those springs that never grows to be more than about 4 inches across and that can only be found in that spring, nowhere else. And I think that's kind of cool. And if you carefully shimmy your hand below the sand and under one of them, you can lift them from the bottom and feel them try to bury themselves deeper into your hand. It's a really cool thing. In fact, flounder are a really cool fish. Hey, I got an idea. Let's take a teaching moment, and I'll do a little professorin' and tell you a thing or two about flounder. So take notes, because there's going to be a quiz. Up north, by the way, flounder are called fluke. Flounder can grow to be as much as 25 inches in length. Female flounder are generally larger than male flounder. Captain Charles Nappy from Hicksville, New York, holds the current fluke world record. He caught the fish in 1975 off Montauk, and it weighed in at 22 pounds and 4 ounces. Now, a flounder's body color, it's dependent on where it lives. They're usually brown with various red, orange, green, and blue markings on their bodies. And interestingly, like a chameleon or an octopus, they can change their color to blend in with the colors of their surroundings, and they can do it fast, like in two to eight seconds. They also adjust color based on their emotional state. This is why a flounder, when threatened, will look paler than when they're not. Flounder can move their eyes independently of one another. Flounder tend to be nocturnal. They feed by ambushing their prey, by waiting very still on the bottom and just under the cover of the sand, and then smash and grab a meal as it swims by, and their strikes are very fast and very hard. Now to camouflage themselves on the bottom, they use their fins to cover their bodies in sand or mud, leaving only their eyes visible above the sand. And when mating, female flounder release up to a hundred thousand eggs in the water. At the same time, when a male releases sperm cells. The fry hatch from the fertilized eggs after a couple of weeks. Oh yeah, I do love that flounders start as fry and often end as fried. I would love to have a flounder fry right about now. Flounder fry look like any other fish, and their eyes are on both sides of their head. But after a couple of days, after they've emerged, one eye starts to migrate to the other side, putting both eyes on the same side of the head, and they start to flatten out. And, you know, flounder can grow to be either left-eye side fish or right-eye side fish. Now, flounder lived from three to ten years in the wild. Hey, in an animal house, Kent Dorfman's Delta Tau Chi name was flounder, and he was played by Stephen First, who was from Norfolk, Virginia. And it was rumored he was a cousin of a good friend of mine, and he showed up at a party once that I was at in high school, which was weird because he was like 13 years older than me. But how cool was it for flounder to show up at a party when you're 17 years old? Oh yeah, there was some Disney character named Flounder in some animated movie about a mermaid or something. So that's some cool Flounder information, but let's quit floundering around and take a gander at my top 10 lures for catching Flounder. And as a reminder, the Fishing Professor show is not sponsored by anyone right now, so there's no manufacturer influence on this list. It's my honest list, the Flounder lures I really use. All right, to get us going, at number 10, I want to say that a white or chartreuse bucktail is fantastic, but I want to be a bit more specific because while a white or chartreuse bucktail is certainly a great flounder lure... I really have to give props to the TTI Blakemore's Roadrunner Bucktail Underspin. Now, this is a unique bucktail in that the head of the lure is bent at a right angle, and the lower part of the head has a spinner blade attached to it. So the lure is kind of a hybrid bucktail spinner bait. The rigging eye sits atop the head, giving the bucktail a great jumping action when jigged along the bottom. They are fantastically durable, and the red-white version is just a killer on flounder. I should note, too, that if you're using the TTI Blakemore Roadrunner Bucktail Underspend, or any other bucktail for that matter, adding a curly-tail plastic can amp up the flounder attractability of the lure. Think about the classic striper, striper bucktails, like the Felmley Bucktail Jig. Just add a soft plastic tail to the bucktail, and you've amped the game up. All right, at number nine, Sea Striker Squid Rig is a great flounder getter and a very popular lure all along the East Coast. It's really a complete rig consisting of a soft three-inch squid rig tied with 42 inches of 30-pound test mono. The rig has a number four three-way swivel at the top with a snap so you can clip a sinker at at the weight that you'll need for where you're fishing. The bottom of the rig has a one-hot saltwater wide gap flounder hook and a number two nickel spinner blade above the squid body. These lures work great slowly pulling them along the bottom just as they come out of the packaging, but if you really want to bump up their productivity, add a piece of strip bait to the hook and you've got a flounder hounder. They do come in about five color variations, but I will admit I prefer the yellow colorations for flatties. And number eight, how about that magnificent shrimp imitator, the voodoo shrimp? Now, you have to recognize that shrimp are a primary forage for flounder. So just about any shrimp imitator is a great flounder lure. But the voodoo shrimp is such a fantastic shrimp lure that it needs to be acknowledged as one of the best shrimp imitators out there. Now, I love what Ken Shomot, Kent Shomont has done with Egret Bates and his shrimp design and the voodoo shrimp is just excellent. And yes, I've reviewed the Voodoo Shrimp a few years back, and that review is still available on the Advent Fishing YouTube channel. And I still think that not only is the Voodoo Shrimp one of the best shrimp imitators out there, but I also think it's one of the overall best flounder lures available. This is a rugged, soft body shrimp that holds up against a flounder's toothy bite. The soft body has a Kevlar mesh woven through the body to give strength to the body and to help resist tears and short-bite rips. It's got a segmented tail and a great front leg action that contributes to its overall real-life like motion when the lure is being retrieved or jigged. It comes pre-rigged with a weighted hook and fishes just great along the bottom. It has great color options and egret baits have recently added 10 new colors to the Voodoo Shrimp Palette. All in all, a top-tier flounder lure. All right, at number seven, I'm going to give props to the voodoo shrimp, certainly. And if I'm going to give props to the voodoo shrimp, then I am both obligated and eager to acknowledge the DOA shrimp as another great flounder lure. And since the DOA shrimp really is the granddaddy of all artificial shrimp, I have to place it just a notch above the voodoo shrimp in the countdown out of sheer respect for that venerable lure. I'm not sure I'd be willing to say that the DOA or the Voodoo catch more fish than the other, as they're probably both, as they really are, both really reliable lures. But the DOA gets a bump because of its pedigree, and it really is probably the most important shrimp lure design in the history of lures, or at least in the history of shrimp lures. It really is the gold standard in shrimp. I've been fortunate to have had a few opportunities to talk talk with Mark Nichols about why and how he designed the DOA shrimp as he did, and I've also spent a significant amount of time reviewing Mark's patents for the shrimp. What makes Mark's design so great, and he told me about how much time he invested in getting this aspect of the shrimp right, is that the shrimp falls horizontal like a shrimp does when settling down from the water to a solid surface. If you've ever watched the shrimp swim, when it rests, it settles not with its head up or its tail down. But horizontally, the DOA shrimp has this action down perfect. That's in part due to the internal weight of the lure, which also makes this a very castable lure. The DOA shrimp is available in five sizes, ranging from two inches to six inches. I rely a lot on the original three inch model when I am targeting flounder. All right, at number six, let's keep the shrimp theme going and give props to Four Horsemen's Boom Boom Shrimp. Interestingly, Four Horsemen's primary tackle products are their renowned popping corks and the Boom Boom Shrimp is really the only lure that they make. And the Boom Boom Shrimp is designed to work best when suspended about 24 to 36 inches under one of their popping corks. But I have to say the design of the Shrimp Imitator is so solid that it works great when jigging the lure along the bottom without a a popping cork as well. The soft body plastic lure is molded around a seriously strong weighted hook to, and the internal weight gives the lure great balance on the fall and the durable plastic holds up against many of those toothy multiple strikes from a, a flounder. They are available in four color options though I hear that Four Horsemen is getting ready to release new color options but for flounder I have really liked their sea biscuit pattern. All right, at number five, you can't have a flounder lure list without acknowledging H&H's original Flounder Pounder. This is a durable soft body lure with a unique design with a kind of grub shaped front portion of the body. But then instead of a paddle tail or a curly tail, the Flounder Pounder has these two little stubby legs. The lure comes pre-rigged with a number four treble hook, which is embedded into the lure and the two stubby legs extend between the bend of the treble hook, leaving the hook snugged in tight to the soft body. The lure has has a lead head that is designed to push the lure deeper into the water, cutting through the current and allowing the lure to slide through the water effortlessly. They come in five colors and are all great flounder-attracting colors. Okie dokie, at number four, let's jump back into our shrimp cocktail and go with another shrimp imitator that I have fallen in love with, not just as a flounder lure, but as an overall shrimp imitator. And given that I'm putting this lure above the DOA and above the voodoo, you should take that as indicative of my respect for this shrimp imitator. And I'm talking about American Tackle Company's Pro Staff Rattling Shrimp. This is a great segmented tail shrimp imitator that comes rigged with a weighted wide gap hook that is rigged weedless. They're about three and a half inches long. I say that because they're listed as nine centimeters, which converts to 3.54331 inches. And I don't get why a company called American Tackle Company lists their lures in centimeters, but they are an international company nonetheless. The pro staff rattling shrimp are about three and a half inches long and they weigh at a quarter of an ounce, quarter of an ounce, but nine centimeters. Come on guys, quit mixing your scales. They come in five dynamic colors, each of which also has these great high visibility glowing eyes that I like. They all, as do the flounder, by the way, they also have an internal rattling chamber that uses a glass rattle to add a great auditory attractant to the lure that really gets a flounder's attention. All right, add number three. Let's go with Berkeley Gulp Alive Saltwater Swimming Mullet. Of course, like all Berkeley Alive lures, the swimming mullet is mostly known for its scent qualities and the powerful scent attractant the lure comes soaked in. I also like the design of the swimming mullet, particularly when rigged with either a jig head or a weighted wide gap hook that will let you rig it, uh, uh, the swimming mullet, as a weedless. The lure has great tail action and will swim along the bottom in a flounder strike zone very easily. They come in 16 color variations, and really can be rigged just about any way you want. They come in a 4-inch and a 5-inch version. I tend to like that 4-inch for them flounders. All right, in the runner-up position, I'm going to offer up Berkeley Gulp Surfbite Strips fished on a flounder rig. Now, the Surfbite Strips are an artificial strip bait that you can cut to the size length you want. They're soaked in gulp scent and can be recharged with the scent by re-soaking them. Now, really, these aren't lures per se, but are artificial bait. I like fishing them using traditional flounder rig with a four-odd octopus hook. So really what I'm saying is that you can use a flounder rig baited with the surfbite strip instead of the bait you would normally use. I like doing this because the surfbite strip create a great scent trail, and they're really durable, so you're not switching to a new bait with every strike. The Surfbite strip are five and three-quarter inches long, but I like to cut them down to about half that size when I'm rigging for flounder. They come in five color options, and all are great for the flatties. All right, that brings us to my number one favorite lure for targeting flounder, but before I let you in on that not-so-well-kept secret, let's get a quick recap of the other nine doormat snaggers. At number 10, TTI Blakemore's Roadrunner Bucktail Underspin. At number nine, Sea Striker Squid Rig. At eight, the Voodoo Shrimp. At seven, the DOA Shrimp. At six, Four Horsemen's Boom Boom Shrimp. At five, H&H Flounder Pounder. At four, American Tackle Company's Pro Staff Rattlin' Shrimp. At three, Berkeley Gulp Alive Saltwater Swimming Mullet. And at number two, the Berkeley Gulp Bite Strips Fished on a Flounder Rig. And that, my friends, brings us to my number one lure for flounder, and that is Fish Bites Dirty Boxer Curly Tail Rigged on a Spinner The Dirty Boxer, which is a scent-releasing 5-inch soft-body tail lure, has earned a reputation as a fantastic inshore lure, and that reputation has grown all along the East Coast because of the Dirty Boxer's prowess in attracting the flounder and fluke bite. These are soft body lures, so you can rig them pretty much any way you want. Jig heads, weedless wide gap hooks, so on. But I really like rigging these on saltwater spinner baits, like those that are used for targeting redfish and trout. Using a weighted hook, a spinner blade, and then running the Dirty Boxer slowly along the bottom or just above the bottom is a remarkably effective way to target flounder. The Dirty Boxer comes in eight color options but I have had my best luck when using the white knuckle color. These are just great, reliable lures. And that about wraps up this week's top 10, but real quick, here's a Flounder Pro Tip. Try adding some of Pro Cure's Flounder Pounder scent to any lure you're using for targeting flounder. Might be redundant on scented lures like the Gulp or Fish Bites Dirty Boxer, but on just about any other lure, this scent gel can add a great extra attractant to a flounder lure. And that does wrap up this week's Fishing Professor Top 10. Of course, I'm sure you've got your favorite flounder lures too. And it's more than likely that a few of you disagree with some of my selections, but I'm okay with that. And if you have a flounder lure you think I should check out, or if you're a manufacturer who makes a great flounder lure that I have not considered, shoot me an email at sid and tell me what I need to know. As always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email, and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And with that, let's get back to casting! Ah, well, my friends, as the great Bob Marley said... Though the road's been rocky, it sure feels good to me. And while I don't think things have been too rocky on this episode, in fact, I think it rocked quite a bit and still feels good, But nonetheless, we have traveled this road to the end and we find ourselves at the close of another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. And I, for one, am grateful that you have shared this little piscatorial journey with me. And I certainly hope you'll be back on board for our next excursion next week. Hey, I do want to thank Captain James Beers of Local Knowledge Fishing Adventures for being on the Rodcast. And if you're down around Tampa Bay, be sure to take the opportunity to get out with Captain Beers for some great fishing and some great fishing. No how. I do hope as well that you enjoyed my thoughts about High West Campfire Blended Whiskey and that you have an opportunity soon to have a pour of it while around a campfire of your own. Of course, I hope you found my countdown of my top 10 flounder lures to be of use and I hope that you get the opportunity to get out after some of them flatties soon too and that you find yourself with a fry pan full of them at that campfire. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The life jackets are on the dock. I say again, the life jackets are on the dock. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week, and I hope you and all the members of my listening crew will keep spreading the word about the Rodcast and of course if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top 10s bourbon breaks interviews or information about specific fishing related issues please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com, or you can just leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventifishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventifishing, and be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventifishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. I will be back next week with another episode. And until then, this This is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on.